Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. This week, we have two segments. The first is a conversation with Emerson T. Brooking, a resident senior fellow at the Digital Forensic Research Lab of the Atlantic Council, about the fall of Kabul and the rise of the Taliban and the role that digital and social media have and will continue to play there. And second, we turn to a discussion I had with Emerson's Atlantic Council colleague, Rose Jackson, and the Institute for Security Technologies, Vera Zakam, about the nascent pro-democracy effort around tech issues and tech policy around the world and the challenges it faces. First to Afghanistan, where the fall of the Taliban was broadcast around the world by Taliban fighters themselves, sharing photos and selfies as they walked into official residences and government offices, announcing their victory in the war. To talk more about the role of social media in their return to power and what to expect in the future, I spoke with DFR Lab's Emerson T. Brooking. Emerson is the co-author of Like War, The Weaponization of Social Media, and is an expert in the fields of disinformation, terrorist communication, and internet policy. I caught up with him on Thursday this week. My name is Emerson Brooking. I'm a resident senior fellow at the Digital Forensic Research Lab of the Atlantic Council and co-author of Like War, Weaponization of Social Media. So before we get started, can you just tell folks a little bit about the thesis of Like War? So Like War came out in 2018, and it was an attempt to examine terrorist use of social media, increasingly national military's use of social media. And then while the book was being written, uh, the Russian interference campaign in the 2016 election, and then the rise of white supremacist violence in the United States. And we make the argument that basic social media tactics bound all these things together. And that one way to conceptualize of them was as a sort of um, viral marketing campaign, which was using all of the same Know, tools and tactics is your run-of-the-mill run marketing campaign, but was premised on political violence. Clearly, we're seeing a very uncommon circumstance unfolding in Afghanistan at the moment, an insurgency from within a country that is essentially taking power. And yet the Taliban is 100% using social media to its advantage. What are they up to? So the Taliban were actually one of the reason I and my co-author, Peter Singer, wrote our book because the Taliban joined Twitter back in 2011. And it was briefly a kind of surreal news story because all of a sudden the Taliban were directly fighting with NATO public affairs officials on Twitter over casualty counts or the outcomes of particular battles. And all of this was playing out in front of the eyes of the global media. So this seemed like a very new phenomenon. Now, with a bit of hindsight, I would say the story is more complicated. Actually, an insurgency like the Taliban have always targeted media, and they've always sought to use new technologies to their advantage. The Taliban actually went online with a pretty sophisticated English language website in 2005. Then they were on Twitter in 2011. Then they jumped to WhatsApp and Telegram in 2015. By 2016, they were doing the same sorts of Uh, glossy propaganda videos and drone footage that one also saw the Islamic State producing in its propaganda. And more recently, with the drawdown by the United States and uh, ongoing diplomatic negotiations with the Taliban, 
that gave them a lot more legitimacy. So they came back to Twitter in a big way. And for people who've just been tuning in, the remarkable images and videos coming from Taliban accounts as they swept across Afghanistan and took Kabul is sort of the conclusion of an internet warfare campaign that they've been waging for 15 years. Courtney Ratch in a piece in Tech Policy Press this week says that the Taliban were not just armed with, you know, in some cases, American rifles, but also with smartphones um, as they marched into the presidential palace in Kabul to really broadcast their their victory across the world. Um, That's right. So, so Afghanistan is one of the last places to get the internet, but Afghanistan does have the internet now. You know, internet and even mobile phone use was a non-factor at the time of the U.S. invasion in 2001. But now about 40% of Afghans have access to the internet. 90% have smartphones. So it is true that the Taliban were armed with these devices, but so is everyone else. We're dealing with a world where everyone now inhabits the same digital ecosystem. We've even seen Taliban going into clubhouse chats with folks in Afghanistan and elsewhere to talk about their goals. Yeah. There are some interesting differences you know, culturally in how uh, different nations and different groups use these platforms. And they, in the case of Afghanistan, literacy rates still aren't that high, especially in the territories where the Taliban come from. But they are extremely adept and comfortable at audio formats. I think that accounts for the attraction of Clubhouse. But that also explains the way that some senior Taliban leaders use WhatsApp because they don't write out long text messages. Instead, they record audio and send audio back and forth. Sometimes it can be quite lengthy audio, but if you, are, if you come up in that society, you're also used to you know, sort of sitting in a circle and letting elders speak one by one by order of seniority. So it's not an unfamiliar system. It's just transplanted to the digital medium. Is there an argument to be made that part of what we see, we're seeing in Afghanistan right now, the, I guess, regaining of power or, or rise to power of the Taliban after 20 years of war, is that partly to do with the fact that they've been enabled by these Western social media platforms? Is there an ounce of responsibility on the platforms for helping them to burnish their image? That is a tough question. It's tough because to give you an example, the Taliban have been designated a dangerous organization by Facebook, and they've been banned from that platform and the same from YouTube for a lot of years. But a lot of Taliban propaganda hasn't been on these platforms, but Taliban fighters have still had a presence. The Taliban are an insurgency. That makes it definitionally very difficult to distinguish insurgent fighters from the population at large. So they've always been on these platforms, and one would expect them to be on these platforms as these platforms have increasingly become a central part of political life in Afghanistan, the same as the rest of the world. So I would say that social media has helped the Taliban, but I would not say these platforms are responsible for much of the momentum that the Taliban have gathered. Because the Taliban have lived in these communities. The Taliban have operated a shadow government in large parts of Afghanistan for uh, 10 or 15 years. If they hadn't had access to Twitter, it might have changed some of their messaging to the international press, but I don't think it would have much affected the power that they had on the ground. There's actually an important contrast here with an entity like the Islamic State, 
which rose very abruptly out of the Syrian civil war, in large part because of its extremely adept viral propaganda. And there, I, I think their presence on Western social media platforms was much more material to their um, battlefield success. But the Taliban are older than the US occupation. They are not the fault of social media companies. Maybe let's get a little bit into the response that we've seen from the social platforms to date. We know that Facebook has set up a special operations center, a SOC, which is it's now, I guess, standard practice when it comes to important world events. We saw them set up another special operations center similarly during the conflict between Israel and Palestine uh, earlier Mm -hmm. this year. So that's becoming kind of a a commonplace thing for them. YouTube belatedly uh, kind of clarified that you know, its policies won't change, that the Taliban is, is meant to be banned from using its platform. But Twitter's doing something a little bit different. What do you make of the response from the different platforms? My gut sense is that the response from Facebook and YouTube is not sustainable. And that is the response where they've said that the Taliban are a dangerous organization and will continue to be totally banned from their platforms. That decision was made years ago at a time when virtually all Taliban content was you know, horrifically graphic violence showing executions or attacks against American soldiers that they used as recruitment material. Now we're dealing with an insurgency that has successfully co-opted a national government. And the immediate goals of the Taliban are to consolidate their control, but to also rule the state, which they have captured. So I wonder if if you take the logic of something like Facebook's ban, does that mean that the Afghan Ministry of Health, when it's administered by the Taliban, will no longer have access to the global internet? How strict will these platforms be? And I also question the strategic utility of it, because one reason that it is important to take content moderation actions against extremist movements is to keep them from gathering momentum, uh, to keep them from translating their will into real-world violence. The Taliban already got everything they wanted. So I, I think it's more important that the top priority be the Afghan people and anything that can be done to help the situation in Afghanistan remain as stable as possible and to retain open lines of communication to shield those Afghans who supported the US or su- who supported the Afghan, former Afghan government who now find themselves in terribly in harm's way. So are you suggesting or, or maybe imagining that harsher censorship from US platforms could backfire and cause the Taliban to, you know, seek to restrict or even deny the Afghan people from using these platforms. I I think that from everything we're seeing right now, the Taliban are desperate for international legitimacy. In fact, in the mid-90s, before the Taliban made the decision to host Osama bin Laden, The Taliban were also seeking and quite intent on international legitimacy, but they were also extremely primitive in their understanding of international systems. And they were transparently barbaric, such that they were never going to get uh, global recognition. The Taliban have spent the last 20 years sort of observing the international media environment, understanding how it can be used uh, to their benefit or against them. And their, their priority right now, as I said, is to consolidate the government. And I think that some of the greatest leverage that the international community has right now is basically these content moderation policies and these social media platforms, which the Taliban would desperately like to maintain a presence. And I think 
one should not throw away that bit of leverage lightly because keeping those lines of communication open means it's less likely, at least immediately, that there are repressive measures to keep Afghan civilians off these platforms. And the more documentation there is and the more lines of communication, I think the more that can be done to shield the Afghan people. We've certainly seen the Taliban use more sophisticated effort. We even saw Deputy Leader uh, Sarah Houdin Haqqani pen an op-ed in the New York Times explaining you know, what the modern Taliban wants, I think, just a couple of years ago. Do you think that there is any reason to believe some of the claims we hear uh, the spokesperson uh, Zabihullah Mujahideed saying that the Taliban is perhaps different, has the interests of the Afghan people in its you know, sights? Do you think there's any reason to believe this more sort of moderate tone that these folks are taking? No, I, there's no reason to believe anything that Taliban says. In all their uh, press statements going back years, they've always been very loose with the truth when it regards um, you know, casualty figures. If you look at every Taliban press release ever, they never acknowledge when they're responsible for the death of an Afghan civilian. So no, the statements from the Taliban are as self-serving as anything else. But we should understand that their top objective, more than, I think, immediately imposing as harsh a Sharia that existed in the 90s, their top objective is that recognition from the international community. And that is the best leverage we have. There you know, has been this collaborative effort through uh, the GIF-CT in order to create a kind of neutral place where the platforms can collaborate on extremist and terrorist content. Have you observed whether or not the uh, GIFCT has had any effect, the Global Internet Forum to Counterterrorism, whether it has had any efficacy in this moment? I, I think the most immediate impact of the GIFCT is that hash database they maintain of terrorist content. This hash database is shared around the shared among the major social media platforms, and it enables automatic content moderation of that content. I suspect that the bloodshed of the last week has generated a lot of new content to be hashed by the GIFCT. And that means that that stuff is not spreading on social media once it's been cataloged. So I'd say that is the most immediate impact of the GIFCT, keeping as much of this you know, violent imagery off the open internet as possible, which I think is a noble goal. Do you have any hopes for it in the future? Or do you think it can play more of a role in situations like this in the future? Absolutely. Look, the, the strange thing about the Taliban, and this, this might change, but the strange thing is that they have historically not been an international jihadist uh, movement. They're a national, nationalistic movement. They are always very expressly focused on power in Afghanistan. They never shared exactly this ideology of global jihad that al-Qaeda did and other such groups. But I think that Taliban's extraordinary success is going to resonate through the internet, and it will inspire other terrorist cells that have more international goals in mind. And the existence then of something like the GIFCT and that hash database will help mitigate the spread of the most obvious Taliban-adjacent propaganda. Is there anything I didn't ask you about that you'd like to get across or that you've been thinking about that hasn't been discussed much out there? Something that I'm still trying to learn more about, but I find fascinating is the adaptability of the Taliban. 
even within this extraordinarily repressive interpretation of Sharia. So in the 90s, the Taliban did not permit portrayals of living human beings. They didn't permit photographs or moving images. As I said, this was haram. After the US invasion, around 2002, as the Taliban was really on the back foot and trying to figure out um, a good propaganda offensive to come back, they settled on the idea of using graphic imagery of civilian casualties from US airstrikes and attacks. And pretty soon that became not just no longer haram, but a basic foundational principle of their propaganda. So even within the context of this barbaric ideology, the Taliban do show a great deal of ideological flexibility when it's expedient for them to do so. So I would think as you know, as we move into the future and as events are rapidly changing, we shouldn't be surprised if the Taliban does more, more things that don't really line up with our idea of them as this um, repressive Sharia group. Well, Emerson, thank you very much for speaking to me about this. Well, thanks for having me. If you are enjoying this podcast, consider subscribing. Go to techpolicy.press podcast to find a link to subscribe via your favorite podcast service. While you're there, join our newsletter. Next up, a conversation I hosted before Afghanistan took over the headlines about the future of democracy and its relationship with technology. My two guests are experts on these subjects. Rose Jackson is an entrepreneur and former diplomat and is currently the director of the Democracy and Tech Initiative at the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensic Research Lab. She previously founded and served as the CEO of Beacon, a platform leveraging data and marketing technology to make it easier for people to take meaningful civic and political action. Prior to founding the company, Jackson served as a senior policy advisor at the Open Society Foundations, where she led a presidential transition initiative focused on reforming U.S. support to foreign military and police. During the Obama administration, she served as the chief of staff to the Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor at the State Department, and before that, as an advisor to Senator Chris Coons on foreign policy and national security issues. Vera Zakam is currently a senior technology and policy advisor at the Institute for Security and Technology and a founder of a mission-driven agency, Zakam Global Strategies. Previously, she led research and strategy at Twitter. She has also worked for a number of national security policy and research organizations, including the CNA Corporation, where she spearheaded initiatives to understand and develop policies to counter disinfo and global malign influence. She is a member of the Council of Foreign Relations and the Tech Advisory Council for Atlas Corp. Let's get right to the conversation. I'm Rose Jackson. I'm the director of the uh, Atlantic Council's Digital Forensic Research Lab's Democracy and Tech Initiative. 
And I'm Vera Zakam, and I'm a Senior Technology and Policy Advisor at the Institute for Security and Technology and the owner of Zakam Global Strategies. We're here today, we're going to talk about the relationship between democracy and technology. Uh, both of you are working on projects or uh, have recently released major uh, efforts around this question. You know, of course, this is a core concern for tech policy press. This is what we're meant to cover is this intersection between technology and democracy. Um, so I guess I have a, a first question that I'll ask just to maybe give you an opportunity to say a word about your individual projects. Is there right now a, a pro-democracy tech movement in the U.S. or in the world? Or is this something you're trying to, to spark? Maybe, Rose, I'll put that to you first. That's a great question. I think there's a growing movement, but it doesn't know it exists yet. And I think a lot of the people that are focused on questions affecting democracy right now are doing work in expertise in silo. So there's an antitrust community that cares very much about questions of power, which is a core part of democracy. And you have people doing work on privacy, which is a core part of individual rights online. And you have people working on disinformation, which is a core part of whether democracies in an electoral or other context are transparently operating with input of the public. And you have a human rights community uh, and on and on and on and on. And I, I found quite often that in talking to people in those spaces that they end their very passionate statements about the work that they're doing with the phrase, and of course, this has ramifications for democracy. Um, so, you know, I think Vera and I both start with the question, what does it mean to support democracy in the context of the technical era we have in the digital world we live in? Um, and so I think part of the, the work is helping people understand that they are, in fact, part of a larger movement uh, and a larger narrative that can bring a little bit more heft and power to the work that they're doing in the places that they're doing it. Vera, you've tried to almost give this movement an agenda. Um, tell us a little bit about what you've been up to. Some of the things that I've been up to, so a couple of things. One, um, the thing I think probably you're referencing in a recent year, I was a member of the Bipartisan Task Force to support a new strategy for democracy and counter-authoritarianism globally. And the whole idea behind that was that we are now in this moment in time where democracy, there's been a decline in human rights and, if you will, democratic participation in governments uh, for the past 15 years. And we're now, we're at this moment in time where technology just about intersects everything related to democracy and the threat of authoritarianism, both physical and digital is certainly on the rise. Uh, so one of the initiatives, what we did was we uh, created this task force. And the idea behind this, given sort of the moment in time, both in the US and around the world, to put together seven strategies um, that really affect uh, democracy and ways to really strengthen democracy and counter authoritarianism. In many ways, the task force really set out the audience for it was really uh, the US government and Biden administration with really strong participation from civil society uh, globally, as well as uh, private sector. But in other sort of venues, it's, it's similar to Rose. A lot of the work that I do is really ensuring that we bring technologists working in this space, civil society and policymakers to the table. So we don't have these kind of silos because the problems are pretty uh, severe uh, ones where individual actors, individual sectors are not going to be able to solve them alone. So uh, it's really wonderful now people are really paying attention, but I think we now need to move the needle on these issues as a collective. 
Rose, if the the task force uh, that she describes, you know, brought together so many very prominent names. I, I feel like part of your initiative is also finding new voices to bring into this this debate. Um, what is going on with the Democracy in Tech initiative? I think part of this is a recognition that when we talk about like, is there a movement behind this? This is really a global question. Uh, and it's, it's hard to separate out the elements that are American specific or European specific versus the kind of broader conversation around whether the way that technology right now is funded, built and governed is viable with long-term human rights around the world. So I'm really interested in pulling together a community of people that are focused on this question of, you know, we want technology and society to be rights respecting, um, but come at it from, you know, the, their experts on China's use of information technology internally, their experts on uh, antitrust more broadly, they're experts on global regulatory efforts, they're experts on how civil society is addressing these issues, but really trying to bring the mixture of people together to be able to build a more common objective. And I think some of that comes from the realization that, you know, perhaps in the in the conversation around, for instance, China, which is often uh, a little dogmatic and a little uh, simplified, but as people are starting to come to the realization that China, for instance, does have a pretty cogent strategy. They've articulated uh, an alternative ideology to universal rights, which I think we all got a little bit lazy in accepting as kind of just what the world would organize itself around. China says, I can participate in the global economic order. I can be economically open and be part of the globalized world and be part of the technological globalized world because I'm going to use technology as the underpinning for political control. And that's this pretty pernicious little twist because a lot of folks working in the internet, uh, working on internet freedom issues and in the digital space in the early days, just kind of had an assumption that the more people online and the more people connected to an open infrastructure, that it would just automatically be democratic. And I think the laissez-faire aspect of the internet that was baked into those early days isn't a particularly great answer when you have a state like China resourcing and advancing an extremely well-coordinated and intentional strategy and set of policies around a vision for the world that reinforces their own interests, but is deeply tied to the way that it is building and extending technology around the world. And so I think about that in the context of what does it look like in not just the United States and Europe, but in countries where people are striving for democracy and trying to protect individual rights and liberties and opportunities, uh, what does it look like in, in comparison? There isn't really a clear strategy. And in the United States, which takes on extra importance because it's home to the largest companies that are providing the technology that we conduct business on, that we increasingly conduct our democracy on, that we engage with our families and our friends, uh, the fact that those companies still exist in this kind of laissez-faire mode means they're increasingly influenced by decisions that China and others are making about how we govern the internet and how we govern the very technologies that we live our lives on. And so I come to this and our initiative is really designed to bring what you're referring to as kind of, is it a democracy movement? But bringing together all of those different people that are working on different pieces of the puzzle to have a little bit more of a cohesive strategy and conversation around the most actionable things that need to happen. And I do think in the United States, we're a pretty big missing factor. We're a big, powerful country with a lot of very important companies. And the fact that we don't have a clear viewpoint which, you know, some people don't want to say the words regulation. I will say the words regulation without shying from it. I think it's a matter of national security. It's a matter of cogent foreign policy for the United States to clarify what it views is an appropriate balance 
of how technology operates in society. And so to do that, I do think we have to start pulling in more people from different sectors, raising different voices, making sure those voices are global, making sure those voices represent different parts of society that perhaps both the foreign policy and the tech industry haven't been very good about including, uh, which we've seen have serious ramifications through the technology that gets built and the policy that gets prioritized. So if the goal then is to create a tech ecosystem that incorporates advances in democratic values, I don't want to say American values, um, where are we at along the path towards that goal? Where are we? Are we phase one, phase two, uh, <laughs> step one, step two? Where are we at? Uh, where would you put us on that, that journey? I mean, none of this is linear. I think that this is urgent. I think that we don't have a lot of time and we're frankly behind where we should be as a community of people that care about these issues uh, and, and being thoughtful and in driving um, the ways that these technologies are being built and how we as societies govern them. But I do think we're in a better place than we were last year. And it's unfortunate that some of that is probably the consequence of seeing really horrific things. Uh, you know, I don't think that if you ask people in Myanmar uh, a few years ago that they would have been, they would have minced their words about the potential consequences of not getting this right. But certainly in the United States, watching a violent insurrection organize itself on the same platform that we share our kids' pictures with, to then show up at our capital and try to overthrow one of the most honored democracies in the world you know, there are consequences to that. And so people are attuned right now to how severe these issues are. And that's an opportunity. But it means that the community of us that work on this in a really wonky space, it's incumbent on us to meet the urgency of the moment and really provide a path forward and real options, real, not just yelling about things, not just saying that things need to be fixed, but coming to the table with solutions and things that we think will make it better. Relative, so I think relative to where we were, say, 2016, and I hate to use 2016 as this defining moment as an example, because it was it was this defining moment in U.S. history, even though a lot of the things that we're talking about have started occurring way before then in different parts of the world. But the idea is now people are paying attention. People are hungry to do something about these sets of issues. Are we where do we need to be? Are we all kind of working constantly together across industries to propose whether it's regulation, meaningful technology solutions, policy-driven solutions, coalition, global coalitions to address these sets of challenges? No, we're not. But the awakening has happened. So that's a really positive thing. So I don't know if we want to pull it. We are relatively to say like years ago, phase zero to now, maybe we're one or two. I'm not sure if that's where we are, but there is an awakening. And as Rose mentioned, there is this hunger now to do something about it. But I think now as this kind of a multi-stakeholder global community, not just a U.S. community, we really need to take, uh, if you will, the phrase, the bull by its horn um, and really, really start to think through practically what we can do, practically what we can achieve as a community of invested citizens and uh, practitioners uh, and policymakers. And if I can just jump onto that, I, I think one of the things that we often forget is the consequence of not having the hard conversation about setting rules and guidelines early is that it just gets harder and harder. So for instance, we don't have clear privacy guidelines in the United States. And I think we all are aware of the consequences in terms of how the ad tech industry operates in terms of the, the risk to our own personal safety and all sorts of other things. But we're, we're now looking at things like AR, VR tech 
becoming more mainstream. And I think we all can imagine a world, particularly after COVID, where there's educational opportunities in virtual reality, in addition to the gaming that we think about, the opportunity for training and all sorts of other things. And we really haven't had a conversation that would let us responsibly build that sort of technology to take into account the risk of biometric data that companies are able to collect and sell, combined with other sorts of information, et cetera. And so I think part of the picture on this is there, there is an absolute point at which our ability as a community of democracies, for lack of a better term, and a community of people committed to human rights are able to shape the ground in ways to have uh, a little bit of the upper hand, but it will never go away. The need to have some rules and conversations and to constantly assess the ways that new technologies are coming into our lives to ensure that, you know, even the conversation we're having right now is about how you extend a pre-digital framework for human rights to a digital world. And that digital world will continue to change and augment and we will constantly have to iterate and update. And so that's why like the, the linear conversation is somewhat harder because it'll never end. And I know that might seem uninspiring to people, but it also means that we have the opportunity to keep trying to get this right, where if we fail to start now, it's just going to be harder. Do we have to update democracy too? I mean, do we have to fix our democracies on some level in order to to realize this goal? I do think this is a really, really important question. I'll tell you why. Because as much as we talk about regulation, regulatory environment, certainly, I mean, in the US, we have to update a lot of laws and policies here. Uh, EU has been a little bit ahead of the game on us and then some of the other countries around the world. And then, you know, think up through what digital platforms, their, their responsibility, not just in terms of developing policies, enforcement product, but how do we actually build responsibly and sort of what civil society can do. I do think this is this moment now where we need to look ourselves in the mirror a little bit. And when I say ourselves in the mirror, not just in the United States, but around the world, because technology is, even if we try to fix all of these issues on the tech front from both regulation policy and actual tools and tech, technology is not going to fix some of the structural and root causes and if you will, grievance issues that exist in our society. Uh, again, uh, whether we're talking about, I mean, I'll say it, and this is a global issue, anti-Semitism, for example. I mean, obviously, anti-Semitism has been, it has been much more fervent because of uh, some of the technological advances, both on social media and offline and in other, in other forms of media. But it obviously has existed um, before that. I mean, there's just plenty of other ones. We can talk about sort of sexism and racism and other things. Part of this is that we as responsible citizens, as uh, stakeholders in our communities, as governments, need to work on our, our democracy. It is a constant work. And, you know, as our President Biden has said, uh, you know, our democracy is not perfect. And it's something that we strive for, we work for, we work towards. And it's certainly uh, likely is the case in many other governments around the world. I mean, it's interesting. I always, you know, I was the chief of staff at the State Department's Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights and Labor. And so my job was often to go uh, around the world and talk to activists under severe threat and really, really uh, intense situations, as well as to sit down with the leaders of countries doing some pretty nasty things to those activists. Uh, and one of the things that I think people forget is that representative democracy is not about some sort of like perfected end state. It's about assuming that things are going to go wrong in society. And the question is whether you have the mechanisms to set it right, to course correct. And that really comes down to 
a question of power dynamics. Do people continue to have the power to course correct when the will of the majority is not represented and the rights of the minority is not protected? Uh, and I think, you know, globally, we're having really important conversations about power and about how we've told our own stories to ourselves, whether that is in the United States about slavery and legacy of slavery feeding into racist systems here or colonialism around the world and what that has meant for countries trying to strive for their own identity and success in a global order. And in that, of course, technology impacts it and requires our democracies to adapt and adjust. But I think sometimes there's this conflation that's like technology is causing democratic problems versus technology being the reflection of societal ills. And so where I find really interesting questions right now, and I don't have great answers for, is, you know, number one, we have, for instance, a bunch of countries around the world that increasingly are sending ambassadors to Silicon Valley in addition to their ambassadors to Washington, D.C., which is a recognition of power. And in that, then where is the responsibility of the state? Where is the responsibility of individuals? Where is the responsibility of these multinational corporations that have amassed uh, formal and informal power? Um, And what does that then mean for addressing the things that we are increasingly frustrated by our democracy's struggles to get right? And so in the U.S., I think we, we are starting to have an important conversation about the fact that just, you know, letting loose artificial intelligence and machine learning solutions to all sorts of really difficult issues is probably not going to result in a rights-respecting solution that we want, maybe just continues to perpetuate the same dynamics uh, that people are increasingly protesting against right now. And so in that sense, I don't think it's deterministic. I don't think that our technology is going to be inherently bad, and I don't think technology is going to be inherently good. It's a reflection. And so right now, we do have to figure out how we mediate power in society, who gets to make those decisions. And I do think that's where some of the antitrust conversation comes in, and it may sound super businessy or a little bit more focused on market forces. But at the end of the day, it is a question of who gets to make those choices, who gets to know what things about me and how as a society we have recourse and opportunity to design the world we want to live in. And I don't think those questions are settled. This is why conversations appropriate, really important conversations around accountability and auditability in Congress and other legislative bodies around the world are important because we are in this moment because it's exactly to what Lewis said. It is it, ultimately it is about power. So you've mentioned uh, antitrust. You've mentioned privacy in particular as uh, pieces that are kind of moving and and shaking at the moment with regard to these sets of questions. Are there are there other tectonic plates that you see that have to move in the U.S. or Europe with regard to legislative legislation or government intervention at the moment to put us on the right path? Oh, my, yes. I mean, we'd be remiss if we didn't raise what's happening in Europe with the Digital Services Act and the Digital Markets Act. Regardless of what you think about the individual approach, massive credit to them for putting forward the most holistic and fulsome democratic or rights-respecting effort at tech governance. I think a thing that we're missing, and this goes to your earlier question about, you know, do we have time or where we are, are we in this process? You know, I think governments are increasingly frustrated, and so they're trying to do something. And each of those governments have different reasons and interests in advancing it. Nothing's all one way or another. But while you do have what I think is a pretty good process and opportunity with the EU uh, laws that are moving forward, A, part of the reason they're doing that is because you had a bunch of European countries creating a bunch of contradictory attempts at regulation at cross-purposes. 
On top of that, you've had in the last year, Australia putting forward some deeply concerning regulatory uh, legislation. You have Canada with a draft up right now that frankly mirrors some of the worst things we saw coming out of India, which leads me to India, which to be clear is pushing, pushing a series of regulations that are both anti-democratic, bad for human rights, and serving anti-competitive purposes. And so I think part of this is getting to what interests do states have, what capacity do states have for setting the right standards and understanding whether or how they may be playing into other interests of other states. And I'll say that just in the context of if I'm China and I am pushing the concept of a digital and technical sovereignty, which is a, a phrase that Europe has adopted in, in like the most mind-boggling way to me possible. It's, it's literally a, a Chinese strategy. The point of that is to say, if the strength of the concept of universal rights is that we all buy into these shared agreements and that there is a basic level of individual liberties and rights that are guaranteed, but also that we want to live in a shared ecosystem where those rights are guaranteed online. And so all of the conversations about internet freedom, having an open, secure, and interoperable internet was what kind of the first version was. China basically took that and said, okay, <laughs> I'm just going to build my own. It's going to be every bit as good, if not better than what you can provide everyone else. I'm going to set my own rules. And they're not going to be rules that are compatible with your concept of rights and you know what? I think everyone should be able to do that themselves. They've done that. And they now, in what frankly looks a lot more like smart business strategy, have scale and heft and offerings that they're now able to push out to other countries. And so they can now say, I think there are just news about um, Chinese companies pushing interoperability between their platforms. So you can see that they're able to start taking what was an advantageous position of scale uh, and pushing that through an anti-democratic version of technology. And so when, you know, Australia or Canada goes it on their own and I think quite genuinely tries to grapple with very serious societal ills, wanting to govern these very powerful platforms that have massive impact on society, they're somewhat unintentionally just advancing a bifurcated strategy that serves the purposes of the CCP and anti-democratic technology. And so I'm, I'm very worried personally about that. Even in the United States, you have individual states going after their own pieces of legislation. And if I'm a company, it, to give them a little love here, that's an almost impossible situation to be in where you have to figure out how to make either your platform compliant to 50 different jurisdictions for everyone or to have 50 different versions of your platform in each one of those jurisdictions. And that's not sustainable. And it doesn't serve our overarching purpose of having an open, free, interoperable and secure version of the internet in a digital world. And so I think you know, the story of the day right now is the need to coalesce around some of these common standards and opportunities. And frankly, for the United States to understand that if it doesn't start making progress on these things, the rest of the world will decide for us and it will have impact on every American citizen and every American company. Uh, so to me, it's it's a much more global story. And we're kind of just sitting there as, uh, as an American uh, electorate and, and government and kind of leaving the biggest expression of power in the modern era on the table. You know, the current platforms, in your views, more of a help or a hindrance in the direction you'd like to see things go? Right now, they're a hindrance, but that's because the incentives are such that they're moving in the direction of what their profit. And I think when I talk about incentives, regulation is one piece of it, but also having a proactive vision of what you actually want things to look like. But I don't, I've, I've never been one of these people that thinks that industry is supposed to just be inherently 
trying to bring good to society. Like industry is their businesses, their job is to make money. And the job of government is to set reasonable rules and regulations to ensure that the process of businesses making money is not detrimental to society and to set the environment to make sure that business can compete because there are real good things that come to society, both in terms of jobs, in terms of innovation, all of those things are real. I think where people are getting increasingly frustrated is the industry increasingly relies on those genuinely positive arguments for what they've produced for the world as a way to hide behind the responsibility and tricky questions about the consequences of the direction that they've gone in for their business incentives. And at the end of the day, I think it's unreasonable to ask Facebook to solve that problem on its own because it's not going to. And unreasonable to ask, frankly, like we talk about Facebook a lot, there's an entire middleware of marketing tech, ad warehouse, sorry, uh, data warehousing, reselling, all sorts of companies who are designed to help you data match at a 0.00003% better rate. So you can save billions of dollars on your advertising. And we don't look at that. We don't talk about it. Most of the world doesn't even know that's a thing. So this isn't intended to be bashing any one company, but I think two things can be true at the same time. Both In the United States, the largest companies are not moving us globally in a better direction on these questions and that they could. I don't think I think the jury's out (laughs) on how we do that and what aspects that requires. But I think that it's sometimes overly simplistic to either blame everything for it. Like, I'm not someone that thinks this is like, this is China's fault, that that's not the point of this. I think it's more, there's a fact of the world that we're operating in. I do simultaneously think that the greatest opportunity we have for advancing a more rights-respecting digital first world requires us to find ways to change the incentives for our companies and leverage their immense capacity for innovation and good and future-proofing to drive us in a better direction. I think both things have to be true. I guess I could argue on, on some level that some of the movements or cogs that are turning that Rose described have been turning on some level in response to the problem of disinformation uh, on the platform. So some of those developments in Canada or Australia or India have been in response to those perceived problems. Um, That was a big part of what you looked at in the, the working group. Things have changed since 2016, 2017, as you referenced. We've kind of gone through one cycle, I think, on, on disinformation as a problem. We've seen a funding cycle around it. We're seeing another now, I think. Where are things headed on, on the problem of disinformation and how it relates to these broader circumstances? We have come, again, like we've been leaps and bounds, if you will, on uh, where we are where, versus where we were years ago. But it still sometimes feels that the problems that we're trying to address around sort of disinformation and how it manifests both online and offline is still a little bit siloed. The one wonderful thing is that you have technologists and civil society and policymakers to a degree coming together to, you know, trying to solve uh, this issue. But there's a couple of things in terms of where some of the challenges and where we're headed. First, in terms of having a coalition, I have yet to see a kind of a global coalition. There's some, there's some initiatives, of course, we can talk about the GIFCT uh, for the terrorism content. You know, there's the Paris call, which is w- amazing. But in terms of addressing disinformation, information integrity, and also how do you actually build resilience to this challenge kind of at the global where you actually bring the stakeholders together, not just to kind of, hey, this is our commitment to address this sets of issues, but how do we actually share information 
And what do we share to actually preemptively address uh, some of these challenges? That's where I think sort of, if you will, the next frontier and to me, and one where I think the governments have to have some ownership for it uh, on this sets of issues and leadership, quite frankly, in the task force, one of the things we proposed in the task force report was a global task force for information integrity and resilience, one that where the United States government and other like-minded democracies have a role to participate and lead in partnerships with civil society, Atlantic Council, the DFR labs, does some of the most amazing work around these sets of issues, uh, as well as industry, actually, like the role that, digital, quite frankly, the digital platforms have, the responsibility that they have at the table on these sets of issues, as well as emerging technologies. Uh, so there's one, in terms of some of the other kind of like sort of the next frontiers, this conversation in terms of the actors is moving. You know, we were talking initially so much about, of course, you know, Russia, and China and state-sponsored actors. We saw, you know, in the insurrection, we were talking about the non-state actors or the individual actors that were spreading disinformation. Of course, we can't, you know, COVID disinformation. But, you know, it's moving. I mean, one of the things is, you know, we have, if you will, disinformation for hire where, you know, say like Russia can pay uh, some uh, marketers or freelancers to write for them and embed uh, those narratives, uh, if you will will online and quite frankly also on offline and mainstream media as well and through trusted circles as well. That's a conversation. The other part where I actually think you know, to the points that Rose made, uh, the impact uh, in the broader democracy discussion and human rights, the impact, the interplay between disinformation and online hate and harassment and the impact this has on marginalized communities, not just in the United States, but around the world. That's a big problem. And I'm talking about women. I'm talking about LGBTQ plus communities, different communities across ethnicities, across race, you name it. And so, and the impact that has, I mean, we're just kind of, in my view, just scratching the surface in really not just understanding, but coming to real practical and tangible solutions. And this is one of those things where, you know, we could talk about, you know, sort of the, the responsibility of digital platforms, but yeah, they have, and to, to what Rose was saying earlier, they have a responsibility into sort of what kind of vision do we want to have in the role that they want to play. But certainly this is one where I think the United States and other governments need to have a much stronger role. Obviously EU has done a lot of work in this area, but they're not the only ones, as well uh, as really strong kind of collaboration between these different sectors on this. So this is an ongoing, and part of the reason this is an ongoing conversation is sort of we're better now where we were before, but this is the threats are evolving. They're never stagnant. And our threats, actors, if you will, whether we're talking about individual actors or non or terrorist organizations or state actors, they're going to learn from our tactics and they're going to be rapid and they're going to be quick. So this is now prudent for all of us to really think a little bit more strategically, but also tactically on how to address this. So on that question around sort of civil society response to, to disinformation, I mean, you know, there are now those major groups like uh, the GFCT and, you know, you mentioned the uh, Christchurch call, but there are also, you know, tons of civil society groups, you know, operating in on a community level. There are groups like DFR Lab that are doing digital forensics in think tank contexts, academic contexts. It seems like there are hundreds of these organizations now whose job is primarily to discern and deal with and react to problems of disinformation on social media platforms. They have to kind of, in many ways, deal with disinformation before they can advocate for their own communities um, or in order to advocate for their own communities. 
is there like a resource issue here, a depletion issue here? Are we kind of pushing against a tide always? Uh, are we are we going to be able to make some progress? Do the platforms need to pay for this? I mean, what what do we what do we need to do about this problem? I think one of the challenges in and disinformation is frankly, like a lot of different categories when we're talking about tech policy, we try to shove everything into that terminology. And I think Vera earlier used the term resilience. Uh, and one of the things in a kind of development context, when we think about, all right, number one, we tend to be focused very much on the United States and other well-resourced societies where there, there's definitely more happening in a lot of countries around the world that are online. And in some cases, the platforms we're talking about are almost the internet. It's still a very nascent process to have. It's not just, it's, it's researchers that are able to actually dig into their own communities and information environment, which frankly is super different depending on where you are. You need to understand the cultural context of how people are talking in different language and different ways of information moving. But on top of that, can journalists talk about the right thing? In the United States, think about 2016. You know, a bunch of people reporting disinformation, not reporting on the function or fact or capability of disinformation, where money comes from, the kind of dissection of an operation. In other countries, that's still a really important piece. And what resilience in one country looks like might be different from another. In a country that has a strong legislature, for instance, if the government starts putting out really terrible laws that are designed to make it easier for them to advance their own uh, information campaigns online. Let's take, I mean, Uganda is a, an interesting example. One of our researchers had uncovered that during the most recent election, members of the actual Ugandan government were running multiple uh, inauthentic networks across different platforms to target the opposition. Now, they also had a bunch of extremely problematic social media laws designed to make it harder for people to operate in that environment with transparency, with access uh, to express themselves freely, et cetera. And so in certain places, is who is it that is the check on power? Who is it that is able to abuse power? In some places, it's the fact that anyone can. So as Vera referenced, the uh, disinformation for hire, that, like, that's a growing industry. There was a crazy case about a Nigerian PR firm that was hired to go after uh, someone that was seeking refrain from extradition in a third country. Like you don't have to be in that only country. And so when we talk about what it means to build resilience against mis and disinfo, I actually think it's about building resilience for a digital society. One of the things that people tend to miss is there are large portions of the world that still aren't online. And again, in the very early days, we were like, we just need to get more people online. And as long as they're on the open internet, everything is going to be fine. And obviously that's not. I'm terrified about what happens when another billion people get access to the internet if we don't actually start investing in communities to have, it's not just digital literacy, even before they get access to the internet. It is about, to your point earlier, Justin, what does it look like to update democracy in a digital era? And some of this is about making sure that those elements of power and those checks and balances are digitally literate, are digitally capable. And so I, one of the things that I'm proudest of with the Digital Forensic Research Lab is a program called the Digital Sherlocks. And one of our core missions is making sure that there's more people around the world that know how to do credible, serious, information ecosystem research in their own communities, because we're never going to cover it all sitting in the United States, nor could we or should we be the purveyors of what fact is and, and what a healthy ecosystem looks like. And so I'm, I'm really energized by that. There's a ton of work to come, but I think we'll be better served when we broaden the definition of what we mean by taking action to support global efforts to counter mis and disinformation. One first comment. 
again, we're really still focused so much of our sort of biases, if you was going to say bias, collective bias, U.S. and your in Western context. But to quote Euros, imagine what happens when a billion more people come online. Well, how are they going to come online? Who is going to support this? Are we talking about sort of these authoritarian like China? Russia, other authoritarian, if you will, models, state, you know, governments are going to enable them to come online. So the access to not just the internet, the access to information, how do they receive credible content becomes so much more important. And this is not, this is completely separate from anything what the traditional digital platforms can, should, and must do. We also have to look at the regional ones as well. Um, Justin, to your point in terms of resourcing and funding around and everything. So one of the things, the good, one of the good things that I'm seeing, good things, is that the communities across academia, think tank communities, and broad like NGOs working in the space are more and more blossoming. They are coming together. Are they all connected? No. And of course, like, you know, I think of the wonderful Craig Newmark, who has been one of the bigger philanthropists in this area to really committed to this cause. But, you know, Craig can't be just the only one that I now see other folks, other foundations that are really investing in this space as well. But the whole idea should be now, if you think about when we talk about it in this big picture, civil society needs to have a role at the table with like-minded governments and democracies and industry that we still need to do a little bit more work in gel as, if you will, big picture civil society to come together. And maybe one of the things, you know, you talk about funding is then you can have multiple organizations teaming up together to, you know, and going after also funding to solve some bigger challenges that we're talking about. One of the things that I find happens to me every couple of weeks is I do find myself in a conversation about tech and democracy, where someone says something like, you know, oh, democracy is eroding or democracy may not survive. Um, and someone else will say, wait, you think we live in a democracy now? We're, we're already beyond that point. The bad future you're describing is now. The climate disaster is now. The pandemic is now. The democratic crisis is now. The next nine years, 10 years, uh, this, the rest of this decade, what, what do we have to look forward to? Where might we get to if things go very well? And where <laughs> might we get to if things don't go well? Uh, put another way, everything is terrible. Rose, tell me how it's not terrible. Is that, <laughs> I mean, I think what's interesting is that everything you just listed is actually a crisis of democratic governance, right? Like the fact that we are in the place we're in on climate, the fact that we are struggling on COVID, all of these problems that affect everyone's day-to-day lives in very serious ways are failures of governance and failures of democracy. And so I think there's absolutely truth. To be clear, we have been in a weakening democracy for quite some time, and there are a lot of reasons for that. But again, I don't think it's deterministic. I, you know, <laughs> when, when Donald Trump was elected, I, after doing lots of extremely nerdy work on U.S. security sector assistance in other countries and human rights globally, turned inward and built a company uh, in the United States trying to leverage the very real potential good power of marketing tech for local organizing. And that gave me the opportunity to meet with a lot of incredibly inspiring people in their own communities who previously hadn't felt either empowered or didn't understand the impact that they could have to change things in their backyard. And that stuff doesn't make the news. And it's not part of this like grand strategic vision of how we address these issues. But I regularly remind myself of that because at the end of the day, 
the question of democratic power in a society is whether or not people feel that they can and should take their own ability to organize and make the communities that they want. Now we're facing, not just in the United States, globally, a pretty significant authoritarian pushback. And there are a lot of people that are genuinely trying to make it harder and harder for the institutions that are supposed to leverage those combinations of little societies that are building the world that they want and organizing to have representative government and civil society changing issues on the ground. Uh, there are people that are actively trying to make that impossible. But that's the struggle. And I think we're in it. So I, I think like I'm, I'm not going to be the person to tell you that we shouldn't be worried right now. I think that, you know, the fact that January 6th happened and, you know, six months later, we're actually having to argue about the fact that it happened and what we refer to violent insurrectionists as that's not encouraging for me in looking forward to the next round of the election to have just basic consensus in a democracy that we're all going to compete democratically. That, that does not make me feel good. But it's not a foregone conclusion that the fight for democracy is over. And I'd point out, you know, Hong Kong, Myanmar, Thailand, you're seeing all of these protest movements of people in, frankly, much more dire situations who either haven't had democracy or had little tastes of democracy, and they're finding creative ways to stand up. And I think I, I'm constantly reminded by people that I met, had the, the honor to meet with around the world who even in the worst of circumstances and up against significant personal risk, time and time again, stand up and say, I want basic freedoms because these aren't American concepts. And these aren't some sort of like high white tower UN ideas that we as people genuinely want to be able to express ourselves, choose who represents us, be able to organize in the interests of our own communities and have peace and happiness in our own borders. And that at the end of the day is what we're really talking about. And so this is going to be a weird time. We're going through some tough times. It means the fight is worth it and that this work is essential and urgent. But I choose to be focused on the durable fact that the values we're trying to organize around are the right ones. They're real. They're time tested. And they I don't own them and no country owns them. Um, and so it's worth it for me, at least, to try and spend the time to make sure that power wherever it exists is put at the back of those values. And so I, I'm going to choose to be optimistic. I'm also going to choose to be optimistic with a caveat. And that is to say, look, I was born in a communist country where I did not have a lot of the freedoms that I, as an American citizen, have now. And a lot of, a lot of my personal professional work has really centered really supporting democracy and democratic governance and human rights and ensuring that these what we talk about all of these multi-stakeholders coming together to the table to solve some of these challenges. I think we're in this critical moment in time and where, uh, as Rose said, um, these are the values, uh, the set of principles, governance that are worth fighting for. And there is a lot of optimism because optimism comes from the, the fact that People are realizing these challenges. And while there is so much pushback, uh, there still feels momentum. For example, in the United States, I see a lot of women saying, enough, they're running for office across all levels, from federal to the most local level. And our democracy is saying, this is it. We need representation in the places of power. Also at the corporate sector as well. We see some of this around the world as well. You know, and in terms of the future, one of the things I will tell you, yeah, the challenges that you mentioned, everything from pandemics to climate change to international 
incidents as well as domestic incidents like insurrections, you know, terrorist attacks and so forth, so on and so forth, you know, uh, emergency and disasters, they're going to continue. If one thing lesson that I can share sort of what I always think about, how do we think about the future? How do we think about these scenarios and how this affects democratic governance and the responsibility that these actors have in the way that we can think through a little bit more strategically and tactically and prepare for the unforeseen so that the next pandemic or the next major disaster happens, we're not very reactive and we're really thinking proactively about these sets of issues. Hope I didn't take it to too much of a dark place, but uh, (laughs) Rose and Vera, thank you both very much. Thank Thank you so much for having us. That's it for this week's show. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to our guests. And of course, thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.